What does it look like to love someone? I don't mean the emotional, the mushy-gushy kind of stuff, or even the romantic stuff. For example, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Is it waving at him when he comes into or leaves the neighborhood? Is it helping them move? Is it watering their flowers when they're out of town? Is it loaning them tools or eggs when they need them? Or in today's culture, is it liking their Facebook or Instagram posts? What does it look like for us to love people in our lives and to love them in a way that is real, in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that presents Christ to them? What does that look like? I think the text this morning will take us that direction to show us a picture of love. And as we step into the end of Acts 4 this morning, we will find that Luke is writing his second summary statement in this book of Acts. You remember the first one came in Acts 2.42. This was his first summary, where he summarizes the early ministry of the church when the Holy Spirit first came, as Jesus had said. Jesus said, the Spirit will come and, and give you power and you'll be empowered and you'll be better off with Him. And you see that in the early church. The Spirit comes. And it includes early on the church growing to 3,000, even noting that the, that day by day the Lord was adding to those who were being saved. And so we come now into the second summary statement two chapters later in Acts 4, 32 through 37. What Luke is doing here is he's summarizing the work of the church as they began evangelism and preaching. Over the last couple of weeks, we saw the story of Peter and John going and sharing the gospel with a lame man, and then seeing that as an opportunity and a platform for people to see a changed life, to again profess Jesus Christ, only to be thrown in jail, to see that as a platform to preach Jesus Christ, only to walk away from that having been warned, having gotten a stern letter, if you will, only to pray that they would be even more bold for the gospel, asking God to give them even greater boldness than what had just put them in jail, knowing full well the consequences. So when we come to Acts 4.32, after a season of evangelism that has probably grown the church to over 15,000 if you're still following the math, Luke paints a picture of an extraordinary community that is sacrificial, that is loving, and that's what we're going to lean into this morning. Look at with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Luke reports the full number of those who believe. He talks about the entirety of the early church. And when he says the full number, he's talking about everyone. The 15,000 plus. All the men, all the women, all of them of one heart and one soul. They were completely unified. He goes on to give you this picture of their full unity, continuing by saying, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That they had everything in common. Now what Paul does here, what Luke does here, in expressing a comment on the early church's unity is to give you an example. To illustrate it for you that they were so unified that this is true of them. That nobody looked at any of their possessions and said, hey, this is mine. I own this. 
But rather, everybody looked at everything as if it were in common. You may remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the word koinonia. This word in common comes from the same root word. And if you'll allow me to indulge that for a minute, you'll remember that koinonia, as discussed in Acts 2, translates to fellowship. Or more precisely, meaning to share things. That's what the early church was defined by. Their fellowship was, we share things together. So it's not surprising here that as they come together, that even their possessions are to be shared. But this isn't my shovel, this is our shovel. This isn't my car, this is our car. This is whatever you need, I'm willing to share with you. Because we have a common purpose and a common unity. And you see that this unity impacted every part of their fellowship, even down to the sharing of possessions as needed. Which begs the question, church, what was their unity? What brought them together? What allowed them to bury their differences, to put away some of their passions? What allowed them to walk away from their selfishness and share so freely? And the answer is Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit had come and He'd given them the power to be a witness to Jesus Christ and the entirety of the community, the 15,000 plus at this moment, was all in on Jesus and salvation. They were all in on Jesus as being the only way. And they're all in on others hearing about salvation. So much so that all of their other distinctions faded away. That all of their hindrances faded away. And everything became about Jesus. Now i got to pause for a second and tell you the church won't stay this way very long. It never does, right? Sin always finds a way to creep in. And in a couple of weeks, Scott Wavern is going to walk us into some of the early sin in the church. You'll see that example in chapter 5. But here early on, we see this picture of Christ being the thing that brings them together. And the New Testament commands us to the same thing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul appeals to them, don't be divided by anything. Quick question, is this a command? you got to talk more to me. I need people to talk to me in my life. This is a command. Paul is appealing to you. This is a true thing. Let there be no divisions amongst you. Church, is this true of us? <laughs> Love that. Some of you answered, I'm going to go with it, theologically. Some of you answered it pragmatically. Are we united all the time? No. Why? Because we let all kinds of divisions pop up. And what that looks like in our lives is we go, Jesus and the Gospel's here. But sometimes my preferences are here. Now we don't like to think about it that way. I think we would all bear testimony. What's the most important thing in your life? We could parade you up here and you'd all go, Jesus! 
But sometimes it's Jesus and my preferences. And what I want. I mean, I want Jesus too, but if we could do it my way, I'd like it a whole lot better. If everyone could get on board with me, we could, we could all go towards Jesus in my direction. And we miss the fact that it's about Jesus and not about me. It's not about my preferences. That's Paul's exhortation to you. His appeal to you that by the name of Jesus Christ, we just sang about his name, the power of his name, the person of his name, that in Jesus we put everything aside. And by everything, I mean everything to promote Jesus. Minor soapbox. One of the worst things about social media is that people like to be right. And I watch all the time an assortment of people who argue proficiently. They argue excellently. And they win arguments all the time on social media. Why does that matter a lick? You will probably not convert or convince anyone on social media. What ends up happening, church, more often than not, is that we dishonor Christ by trying to be right, by trying to win, by trying to make sure our political perspective or our philosophical idea or our thought trumps everyone else's thought. Jesus. You know that's the only platform we get? And every other platform, and I mean this, and I know some of you think I'm talking about you and I probably am, Jesus. That's the platform we get as believers to say, Jesus Christ, that's it. That's everything. And when we make it about all sorts of other stuff, we limit our ability to talk about Jesus. And that's what Paul writes to here. Calvary, do you have any idea how many churches over the year have split over paint colors? or wall colors, or whether or not new chairs were needed, or whether we should redo the parking lot. I'm sure Calvary's had these problems. We're not immune. What we miss is that all of these things are distractions that keep us away from our mission. It's making disciples and it's proclaiming Christ. I'm not saying those details aren't important. We need to have nicely painted walls. We need new chairs from time to time. But when those things become the principal things... We miss Jesus. Church, our platform is Jesus. That's all we get. And so that's Paul's push here. That's what Luke is testifying to being true here. Now I get accused by several of my friends of meddling in sermons, and this will be my most meddling sermon, I think. Because there's some really tough things coming out in this text following, and I'm giving you what God's Word says. Please know it's made me incredibly uncomfortable this week. Because this is what God's Word puts before you. And as we commented a couple weeks ago, that it's my job, according to the text, to equip you to do ministry. And your job to do it comes from Ephesians 4. I'm going to give you that text now. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I put it all in one slide because I wanted you to see it in one pop. God gives the church gifts. He gives it talents. He gives it abilities. If we lean into that, we all show up here. I happen to be a shepherd. That's my gift in the body to the body that God has given us for our edification. And the the point of all of these gifts is to equip them. Look at verse 13 because this is the point. You get equipped until, verse 13, we all reach the unity of the faith. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now, this mature manhood isn't just a masculine term. It equates to anyone that wants to take us to full maturity. If you're a woman and that challenges you, you want it to say femalehood, I'm, I'm okay with it here. We men have to deal with it in other places. We get to be the bride of Christ. It all works its way out somewhere in the Bible. But God is trying to grow all of us up. And in doing so, and this is my job according to the text, is to help you and equip you to be matured, to grow up spiritually until we reach the fullness of Jesus Christ. Now, will we reach that here? Absolutely not. Not a one of us. Do we still chase it? Yes! We still pursue Christ-likeness in everything. So this is the job description given by the Holy Spirit, because He's the one speaking and inspiring the text, that each and every one of us would be built up until we are unified, until we're grown up to the point that there's a gospel priority, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is sufficient, and that He is the only thing that matters. That's what this text testifies to that's my job hopefully i'll quit someday when we're done that's a joke but please church get there and i'll quit it'll be a great great day the new testament testifies to us over and over again that everything is worth giving up that he would be glorified and that's what we see the church doing here early on It's what we see the disciples doing, giving up everything that He would be glorified, verse 33. And with great power, remember the Holy Spirit promised all of us power. This isn't just true for them, it's true for all of us who've believed in Jesus Christ, who've heard the Word and believed, you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've been given power. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Now if you follow this text, you might think this sticks out. Because you see community, you see unity, and then you see evangelism? Like how does that all work? And that's where Luke reinforces the reality for us that the unity of the church was unity of the gospel. It was a unity around the priority of the gospel. That if you lean into this text, you will find that these people were not nicer, were not less selfish, and better behaved than we are. 
It had nothing to do with moral ramifications. It had everything to do with the fact that they were unity, they were unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that literally become the only thing that mattered to them. It was their mission and their vision. It was all they were about. Building a, a community that was so unified around the gospel that people were being saved. You see that lived out. By the way, that's the same vision that exists in Calvary's mission statement. We, it's on your bulletin every week. Building a community in Christ to reach a community for Christ. And please notice that second part. That our ultimate goal in building a community at Calvary is not better friendships or a squad goal. It's not having more connected people or helping you feel a part of something. The ultimate goal is that there would be a gospel unity and a a gospel focus that would bring all of us together so that we, as a church, could reach the community for Christ, which is the only thing that matters, right? Can I get more amens? And so Luke testifies here to the church and about their unity based on the primacy of Christ. Such that they were of heart and of soul, they were together, and their unity went so deep and real that it impacted how they viewed their stuff. And so you, Luke illustrates that for us. Not only is he illustrated, he then gives us an example. And he works hard to do this for us because he wants us to see this principle of unity played out by an example of selflessness specifically illustrated by the life of Barnabas. So he puts before us, this isn't a trite thing, this isn't a simple mention in the New Testament. It outflows from everything. He wants you to see it and then see the reality of verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. It's first century Jerusalem. That's a pretty incredible testimony. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what they sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Watch this again. This people, the church, unified around the gospel, see to it that their possessions aren't theirs, they're common, they're for anybody who can use them. Gives you the example that if anyone has anything extra, we should sell it and give it to the disciples to benefit those who need. So it gives you the real life example so that you can go talk to this guy. Sometimes we miss the fact that these books were written a long time ago and that people would read this and go, oh, is that how Barnabas showed up in the Bible? We should go talk to Barnabas. We should figure this out. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, the name he goes by for the rest of the book of Acts, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Some of these details matter. They tell you exactly who he is, but they also tell you some extraordinary things. Levite, according to the Old Testament, is not allowed to own land. But a native of Cyprus could own land because he wasn't from, he couldn't own land in the promised land, could own land in Cyprus. So if you're a prominent Old Testament guy, you go, wait a second, he's a Levite. He can't own anything. The guy's breaking the law. 
Yeah, but he was from Cyprus. So he wasn't breaking the law. Luke puts all this together for you so that you can lose the argument while you're reading. Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid at the apostles' feet. This is the same Barnabas that will bring Paul into the fellowship of the church after he converts. This is the same Barnabas that will then travel with Paul on his missionary journeys. We'll see him more as we work through the book of Acts. But here, Barnabas sells a field and brings the money to the apostles. Now we've got to look at this. Friends, the church has not compelled him to do this. Now oftentimes, people look at these passages and try to push some view of Marxism or communism on the church. This is how we ought to operate. And the answer is no. That's not what the text says. There's no compulsion here. Barnabas looked around, saw needs, and said, you know what, I can do something about that. I've got some stuff and I can help these people in need. Barnabas saw a need and he responded. There's no compulsion here. There's nothing in the text that compels you to do that. So you walk away, feel guilty, and said, Pastor Ben told me I had to do this. No! Not telling you to have to do that. Telling you the Holy Spirit compelled Barnabas with compassion in his heart to see needs and respond to them. And so they provided for one another. Verse 34 suggests this is a normal occurrence because the text says, for as many as were owners of land or houses, this happened a lot. Barnabas is an example. And in this case, he's the specific example of the illustration of selflessness that is stemming from their gospel unity. So if you're following the text, unified around the gospel, so unified that they're willing to be selfless so that you get the example of a guy selling his stuff to provide for people in need, not out of compulsion, but because he loved them. So before we get on to how we make application of this text, I need to point out something to you that will be helpful for us going forward. Because Luke, in making this illustration, is setting up a contrast that you're going to need to have and you're going to need to hold on to. Because Luke is setting you up for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He's giving you a positive example so that when the negative example comes, you'll see the stark contrast you'll see that this passage shows us the unity in the church built around the primacy of Christ that overflowed into the lives of believers, creating them and setting them up to be examples of Christ by sacrificing everything, including their possessions, as opposed to what you'll see in two weeks. Barnabas lived with this reality, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, it's about the kingdom, and again, that will be heavily contrasted when we look at Ananias and Sapphira. So Calvary, what do we do with this passage? Are we called to sell some of our stuff and bring it to the church so that the proceeds could be used to build the kingdom? Maybe. Maybe. The disciple John, you'll note him from the beginning of this story, would later write in his third letter, um, or in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He later, six verses later, will describe that love in verse 17 and 18. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. John writes, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother need and closes his heart against him, you'll note John writes real harshly. And the distinction here is not that you won't sell your stuff. The distinction is that you'll look at somebody and you'll close your heart. That seems to be the problem in the text. But John sure seems to be getting to that if God is alive in you, God's at work in you, there ought to be some willingness to see somebody in need and have excess and go, I should do something about that. That seems to be a gospel truth and a gospel love here. John continues in 23. This is his commandment, his talking about Jesus. That we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another. That's him putting together the two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. It's nothing new here. Just as he, Jesus, commanded us, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us and by the spirit whom he has given us. So if John seems harsh, you should know where John gets this diatribe from. Because what John does here is he gives you a sermon based on Jesus' message at the Lord's Supper. Let me put it in Jesus' words. Because you always appeal to Jesus when you need a high authority. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. You see, Jesus in John 13, 34, escalate love, not to the golden rule. Christians don't buy into the golden rule. The Bible will tell us, even pagans will do that. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you go love other people. Just as you've been loved by Jesus, how has Jesus loved you? Go love others with that love. Why? Because Jesus is prime. We're called to give the world Jesus, that we love the world like Jesus would. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, have love for one another. Now, you've got to keep 35 in the context of 34. The world will know you're his disciple if you if I do for you what you do for me. No, the world will you know you're his disciple if you'll love other people as Christ would love them. That you'd love them with the love of Jesus, which is a willingness to give up absolutely everything. Jesus continues, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus equates, if you want to love Jesus, obey him. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You should see the words of John, the words of Jesus, heavily written on each other. John, having learned everything he knew from Jesus and making application to that. That's what drove the early church. Is this Jesus-focused love? So Calvary, is the church calling you to sell some of your stuff and give it up to build His kingdom? Maybe. And I think we should live in this tension far more than we do. Or again, I'll give you John's words, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart, 
How does God's love abide in him? To give you specific application to that, Calvary has a fellowship fund. It's a benevolence fund that is used to help people in need. People who are struggling. People who don't have enough, who aren't sure how to get by. And to be very frank with you, it's a fund we've had to lean into a lot over the last year. And we're anticipating leaning into it a lot this coming year as well. So, the Lord may very well be using you and using this text to prompt you to give to that fund to see that there are people in needs that the church can cover. I'd say that all of you for two reasons. One, I want you to know the church applies this concept in our fellowship. And two, the fund exists for people to give to, to support others. So mechanically, it's all there that if you want to provide for the needs of others, it's there. Now that's an application to this text, but it's not the only one. Now, it's an application we have to consider because as Luke writes to you telling you about the unity of the church, and he illustrates that with selfless giving, illustrates that by giving you the example of Barnabas, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least put that before you. But the main application of this text comes back to the unity of the church. That we would see that the early church was so passionate for the gospel to go out, so clear on the primacy of the gospel, that that's what framed their unity. That they all gathered together around this purpose. Jesus must go forward. we got to keep talking about Him, regardless of what it costs us, regardless of what it looks like. We gotta keep getting Jesus out there. If they put us in jail, if they beat us, if they take everything away from us. You'll note as we walk through in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, you'll find the church at Jerusalem start to be the poorest church in the Bible because all the other churches start taking collections to send to Jerusalem. Why? Because all that happens to the church in Jerusalem. They start being abused. They start being taken advantage of. And they start being persecuted. Paul writes in nearly every one of his letters the exhortation to be unified. To see that the gospel is the thing that brings us together. That each of us, each and every one of us, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, that we all be grown up to maturity to a greater maturity in Christ, to see that Jesus' name is raised higher and higher and higher, and that He is made greater and greater and greater and greater. And in the words of turn your eyes upon Jesus, that in doing so, that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim. The week I started reading into that hymn, it was written in 1914, by an English lady who wrote it in response to an Albanian missionary who wrote a pamphlet called Focused. She talked about what does it mean to be focused on Jesus while she served in a hard location. With these, this idea of turn your eyes to Jesus and everything else will fade away. Focus on Jesus. It's lifting up the name of Jesus. It's lifting up the cause of Jesus that allows everything 
to grow dim. It allows the distractions to go away or hindrances to fade. Church, if we want to be this kind of unified, we have to see Christ exalted. We have to see Him lifted up. And it looks like each of us pursuing Him and begging Him to teach us. And it looks like us taking and living out the Gospel and striving and trying through the power of the Holy Spirit being empowered people, living out the power the Holy Spirit has given us, all of us, to see Christ exalted. And the more and more and more we make Jesus our focus, the more those things will fade away, and the more we'll have a unified church that God uses to build His kingdom. Church, as we've walked through this book of Acts, it should be clear to you that God has given you power. That He's wanting to use you to build His body. That the church does not exist for our comfort. The church does not exist for our preferences. The church does not exist for me to get what I want out of it. The church exists to exalt Jesus Christ. To see salvation preached. That we would gather together publicly and privately proclaiming salvation in Him. He's the only thing that matters. He's the only thing that gives my life worth. And the more we proclaim His name, and the more we live that out, the more we'll see the church or the world turn to Him. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we stare at this text this morning, see how far You brought the early church in these early couple months as they gathered together with the Holy Spirit's power and began testifying to who You were, Father, we see immediately that opposition came. And they overcome, they overcame that opposition because Jesus' name mattered more. They overcame opposition because salvation mattered more. And Father, You put such a unity in them about the name of Your Son. Father, they overcame incredible things for the name of Your Son. Father, the text tells us that they were so unified that they were willing to give up even their stuff to see Your Gospel go forward. And Luke gives us this example of Barnabas. Father, I have no idea of whether you'd call anyone in our church to sell their stuff and give it away for your kingdom. Father, only you know that. And it'll be by your prompting that something like that could happen. But Father, as a church, I pray that you'd call us to a greater obedience to your word. It's not a play on words as to convict anyone. That's a reality, Father, that we'd see and proclaim the primacy of Christ. Father, I pray this to be true, that in Calvary, our unity would not be in our location. Our unity would not be in our economics. It wouldn't be in our social social factors. It wouldn't be because we're friends or because we like each other. Father, I pray that our unity would be brought together because we love and lift up the name of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.
Invite the ushers to come forward.